welcome back um, to the Boone Center for the Family Lecture Track. We're going to hear from Ron Deal again on step families. An hour ago, he presented uh, more directly for individuals involved in step family relationships, which is many, many people in the world right now. And this session is going to focus more on ministering to step families. Ron is a marriage expert and expert on blended families. And he is a real delight um, to hear from. I learned a lot personally in the last session, so I'm sure you will learn a lot here today. Um, if you are interested in being added to the Boone Center for the Family mailing list, please complete the small um, sign-up card on your seat there, and we'll collect those at the end. Thank you. Let's welcome Ron. Yeah, a word about handouts. Um, we have some now? Okay, so the little one sheet that I handed out is not the handout for this workshop. So that's what Sharon has. And if you'd like one of those, raise a hand. So who's over 50 and wants paper? <laughs> <laughs> that's me. Sure. If you search for Ron's name, it'll come up, click on the session, and then you'll see where the PDF is. And I got one more thing, because you just love filling out stuff. So if you want to be on the Center for the Family here uh, at Pepperdine, get on their list. If you want to be on my list, okay, that's this little card up here, and I'll just let you grab one at the end, fill it out, and hand it to me. All right, we'll just make it really simple. Okay, good. Um, yeah, so I have spent my whole life in marriage and family ministry, therapy, and the last 25 years specifically working with, with step families of various shapes and sizes. I know some of you were in that last workshop, so I'm not gonna go through all that introductory stuff again, because we're gonna turn the corner, we're gonna spend some time talking about ministry. I work right now for Family Life. Family Life um, is the largest ministry you've never heard of. Uh, I like to say that to people because it's often true. Maybe you've heard of Dennis Rainey and Family Life Today, if you've ever heard of that radio program, that, that's, that's us. But Family Life is a um, $35 million a year organization. We're in 104 countries around the world. We do a marriage event called the Weekend to Remember Marriage Conference that's done 95 times in North America. About 60,000 people a year go through that one event alone. We do a cruise. If you like going on cruises, we'll do a marriage cruise around uh, Valentine's every year. This next year, the 10th anniversary of our cruise, we, we take the entire boat, by the way, and we do all the programming and everything on the entire ship. Nobody is there that's not there to be a part of this Christian marriage enrichment cruise. This next year in February is the 10th anniversary, and we went upscale. We got the biggest boat that's available. It's that new Nor uh, uh, Norwegian, is it? Um, that it, You see all the ads where they're out, and it has you know, the zip line across the top. That's our boat. We're going to have it. 5,500 people plus staff, cruise staff. And it's 90% sold out, and it's May. So if you want to get on, you got to get on fast. That's the kind of stuff Family Life does. We do some really good things. We have curriculum for churches, marriage events, parenting resources. Uh, the largest curriculum we put out in the 42-year history of the organization was this last year, and it's called The Art of Parenting. It's a video curriculum, very well done. As it relates to marriage, what if I told you that not all marriages are created the same? You look at this little picture, and you just grab this little snapshot of happy couple, not so happy child, right? What is a gain for the adults 
at the point of a marriage forming a blended family is sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes a bit of a loss for kids. Meaning something else in their world has changed, something else is different, and they have to begin to figure that out. And so sometimes you get reactions like this. A lot of people will say, we just didn't see this coming. You know, like we were dating and the kids were happy and everything seemed to be good. And then what happened? Well, it's just, it turns the corner emotionally for children. And it's not real until it's real. And so all of a sudden, they have some adjustments to make. Well, what I want to do is I want us to talk about how we can minister to couples and blended families in the local church. Now, there's a lot of different families that, well, we did the math, actually. There's 67 different potential stepfamily types, configurations. Let me show you one. All right, so here's Rick and Cindy. They had two kids, Amy and Amanda. Rick was tragically killed in a car accident. Cindy has since married Larry. So Cindy's married to Larry. She has two children. He has two stepchildren, Amy and Amanda, and they're expecting their first child. How many households in this blended family? One. Yeah, it's not a trick question. Yeah, one. No, they got three sets of grandparents, right? Because Rick's parents are definitely invested in their grandchildren. And now they're about to have a step-grandchild? How's that work? No, I guess it'd be a biological, no. It's a half, you know, what is that, you know? And so they're gonna have to figure that relationship out. Um, and we have three sets of grandparents who wanna see the kids at Christmas, who so wanna we'll figure out how we do that. But that's one of the 67 different potential step-family configurations. Let me show you another one. Here's Jason and Katrina. They dated. They were never married, but they had a child, Tamara, together. Jason is now dating Alicia. She was married before, but no children. Divorced from Scott. So they're a dating couple. If they get married, how many households will be involved in Tamara's life? So it's a little tricky. Two, right, Alicia and Jason, if they get married, be their household, and then mom, Katrina. Right, Scott is Alicia's former husband, but they didn't have children together. And so typically when you have a divorce and no shared children, you know, typically part and go their separate ways. But when there is a shared child, there's no such thing as divorced parents, right? There's only divorced couples. And so there would be potentially another household. But how many said the grandparents? Now, Jason's, you, can you figure that one out? He has his biological parents, but they divorced. That's what the little bridge line means. And then they each remarried. So how many sets of grandparents involved in Tammy's life? One, two, three, four. Right? Not, and we're not counting Scott's parents. That's another one. That's a little more complicated, right? So they've got more things they got to think about, more people involved in the picture, more dynamics. Let's do another one. Susie married John. They had three children, Mary, Mike, and John Jr., but as life would have it, they divorced. In another part of the universe, Bob and Betty were married. They had two kids, Ted and Carrie. The two got a divorce. Since then, Betty has remarried Frank, and Bob has remarried Susie. Are you with me? How many children do we have in this blended family situation? Five. How many adults parenting those five children? Five. 
Frank is not a biological parent to any of the five. He's a step parent to Ted and Carrie, but he's definitely in the picture, right? Five adults, five kids. How many households? Three. Three households. That's far more complex. Kids moving, lots of moving parts, different relationships. We have co-parenting relationships between former spouses. We have parenting relationships between a bio-parent and a step-parent in at least two of those houses. And then John is still a single parent. Maybe he's dating. Who knows? Right? Lots of stuff going on. Now, when Susie married Bob, she knew she would get a mother-in-law and father-in-law. That's what happens when you get married. But what she didn't understand is that she was also going to get what I like to call an ex-wife-in-law. This is the woman who can control Susie's life with a phone call. All Betty has to do is pick up the phone and call Bob, and she changes Susie's finances. All Betty has to do is pick up the phone and call Bob, and she just changed Susie's schedule. All Betty has to do is pick up the phone and call Bob, and she changes Bob's mood. He was happy, and now he's not. And now Susie has to deal with an unhappy husband who then gets grumpy with her kids. And that affects parenting. And that changes her heart because her mom heart is connected to her wife heart. And those two things influence one another. And now all of a sudden, Betty seems to dictate the parenting and the marital climate of my home. I didn't marry Betty. I don't want Betty. I don't like Betty. How do I get her out of my life? What if Betty, what if Frank is a real jerk? What if he's an egotistical maniac? What if he is a horrible parent figure? What if he is maniacal? What if he is all, what if who he is affects who Ted is, and who, and who Ted is affects who, how he treats his step-siblings, Mary, Mike, and John Jr.? Susie has to be influenced, her kids are influenced by Frank. She certainly didn't marry Betty, but she really didn't marry Frank. But Frank's a part of her family now. See, rule number one of step family living is that everybody on this genogram so far is a part of your family, whether you chose them or not. We're not done, by the way. We've got more family members to go. But I want you to get a sense of that. Like, that's complexity, and that's hard, and how do I manage this? And by the way, when, you come, when they come to your parenting class, do you ever say anything about those other people? Do you teach them anything about dealing with your former spouse? Do you help them understand the relationships with Frank? And what to do about that? Probably not. Not many parenting curriculums will address anything related to that. Now, Bob also got an ex-husband-in-law, and John, they've got to learn how to deal with each other. And it just is what it is, right? So uh, Susie has primary custody. So let's see if I can turn that off. Susie has primary custody of her kids. Every other weekend six weeks in the summer, John does. Bob and Betty has primary custody of her two kids, but they spend some time with Bob. And so on occasion, Bob and Susie have all five. This is more of the complexity. But then we need to include grandparents. Bob has assisted parents, Susie's parents divorced, and then they've remarried other people. John's got parents, Betty's got parents, they're divorced and married to other people. Frank also has parents. How many? Five kids, five adults, three households. How many grandparents trying to get time at Christmas? <clears throat> Can anybody figure that out? And what if Frank's parents give $100 gifts to Ted and Carrie and give nothing to Mary, Mike, and John Jr.? And they probably won't because, like, they don't have any relationship 
really with Mary Mike, like what is that connection about and what are the rules? Like, are we a part of that? Are we not a part of that? Should we even ask to show up at birthday? And what if, if Betty's parents give $100 gifts to some and $50 gifts to others? All of a sudden you have a lot of people influencing this life, right? But this is not it. That's just, that's just structure. Now let's look at relationships. Bob and Susie have a marriage, but they're also parents. They have to deal with both of those things as a couple, husband and wife, but also as a marital couple. Bob, Betty, and Frank have a marriage, and they are also parents. Uh, then we have Bob and Betty have a co-parenting, former spouse relationship, raising Ted and Carrie. Susie and John have the same thing. We have sibling subsystem. We have another sibling subsystem. And then we have step-sibling subsystems. Uh, now we have Susie and her kids. And that relationship is pretty primary because they're her children and she was a single mom for many years. And now Bob has kids with you know, his and now that he's incorporating his wife Susie as the stepmom in with his kids. And then Susie's trying to incorporate Bob as the stepdad in with her kids. They have old relationships and new ones. Uh, the old relationships are teal color. The new ones are yellow color. Let's just get a sense of this, because this, this speaks to loyalty, right? This speaks to who do I really hold on to and who really matters to me. So Ted and Carrie obviously have a biological relationship with their dad and Susie with her kids. And that's a two-way street, those relationships. If you have children, you know what I'm talking about. You're committed to them from the moment they're born. Nobody has to tell you to love them. It just is. And you would go to the ends of the earth for your children. You would die for them. You'd do anything for them. That is unquestioned. And by the way, you could be a jerk as their parent, and they still love you. How many of us know kids who haven't seen their dad in however long, and he calls and says, I'm going to show up Friday, and they get all excited, and everybody knows it's not going to happen, but the kid's like, I so want dad in my life. Like, I need this to happen. And it's a big setup for disappointment, because again, he is not going to show up. Why would a kid give him that second chance? Because he's my dad. Because of that. The new relationship is the marriage. Bob's developing a stepdad relationship with his kids, so with his stepchildren, I mean, but they also have a biological relationship with their dad. Does their relationship with their dad have anything to do with their developing relationship with their stepdad? Absolutely. What if bio-dad John tells him, look, he's not your dad, I'm your dad, you don't have to do anything he says. Does that influence their relationship with Bob? You better believe it does. So parenting for Bob has something to do with John. Does he live with John? Does he love John? No, he, it's his ex-husband-in-law, but who knows what kind of influence John can have over him. Same thing's happening with the other kids. So there's a biological relationship there, but they have a developing relationship with their stepmom. What if Betty says, she's not your mom, I'm your mom. Don't enjoy her, don't like her. It probably works. It probably influences the kids. They have a developing relationship with Frank, their stepdad, and a bio relationship with their dad, Bob. They have bio relationships with bio grandparents, and they have step relationships with step grandparents. And those are all trying to get figured out in the first few years while they are merging their family members. And what's crazy about this whole process that we've just outlined is that every one of these dynamics is going on all at the same time from the moment they walk down the aisle. And we do this funny little thing when they show up at church. We say to them, hey, let's focus on your marriage. We want to teach you communication skills. We want to help you relate to one another. 
We want to teach you to manage your money. As if nothing else up there is in existence. We want to teach you conflict. Have you guys ever noticed, have you picked up most marriage books? Think about the average marriage book that you've read, that you really love. How many chapters in it about parenting? How many chapters in it about co-parenting? About dealing with grandparents, about dealing with former spouses, about dealing with loyalty matters between relationships, about trying to figure out your role as a step-parent in the life of a kid. When you have more time with your stepchildren than you do with your biological children, how do you deal with that guilt? How many marriage books talk about any of that? See, they don't. This gives away what we know about relationships. The fact that for years we've been able to do marriage and family ministry and marriage books talk about marriage and parenting books talk about parenting, but they don't have to talk about the other, says something about the power of a biological family and the, and the relationship that's within it. Everything supports everything else. When you help a marriage, you help them parent. We just don't have to necessarily point to that. It's a natural outgrowth. It's what I said in the earlier session when a dad spends time with his kids, mom's heart is warmed about that. T caring for children also cares for the marriage. Caring for the marriage also cares for children. But in blended families, that's not the case because the relationships are competing with one another. It's what we call competing attachments. In other words, Ted's loyalty to his bio mom, Betty, has something to do with his relationship with Susie. Um, one, of, one of the things I want you to see is that we all have different motivations toward love. Some people, oh, I don't have any friends, you know, I just wish I had more friends. And you have this motivation toward finding friendships. If you try to make a friend out of somebody who doesn't need a friend, how's that gonna go? Not well, not real well, right? Their motivation to, to be a friend to you is less than your motivation to be a friend to them. So it's going to go the way of the lower motivated person, right? Right. Whoever's the least motivated always has the most power or say, if I could put it that way, in how far the relationship is going to go. The same thing happens in a dating relationship. If you're kind of keen on them, but not really, <laughs> but they're so in love with you, well, how far is that going to go? Only as far as you'll let it. Same thing's true with all these developing relationships. The adults are often highly motivated to bond with stepchildren. But stepchildren vary in their motivation to bond with stepparents and step-siblings. Sometimes kids have high motivation to embrace, welcome, and move toward a step-parent. Sometimes that motivation is something less than the adults. You have this natural competition that's taking place at that point in time. And it becomes... Navigating all of that complexity that gets challenging and difficult for people. One of the things I'm going to say to you in a little bit is we got to help step families have step family answers to step family questions. These are the step family questions. But if we just give them a marriage book that's, that's one dimensional, we don't really get to it. So let's keep going and talk a little bit about that. Let me tell you why I'm saying non traditional is the new traditional. Over half of Americans are single. 70% of young people, their first coupling relationship will be a cohabiting one, not a marriage one. 70% will cohabit before marrying of young people today. 
By the way, Scott Stanley did a recent analysis with um, Glenna Rhodes at the University of Denver. Scott's written more about cohabitation than anybody who's done more research around that. I highly recommend he, him and his work. Um, recently, he and Glenna kind of put some numbers together, and they started looking at not just first-time cohabiting before a first-time marriage, but also after divorce or widowhood, people who in midlife and later life are cohabiting before a or instead of a remarriage. And, when, and they put all those numbers together and they created an estimate, right? Because there's no really hard data on all of that that they could combine, but based on their estimates, they say 80% of all adults in the US will cohabit with somebody at some point in their life. And when I started doing marriage and family ministry, if somebody was living together and they came in for premarital counseling, they lied to my face. They didn't, they didn't want me to know, right? They were ashamed of that. Now, they just walk in and they, they think it's weird that people are not living together. And that's church people. It is so shifted. Am I the only one? Like, Does anybody else in here go, man, it is really different out there. Absolutely it is. Sharon shared a stat a little while ago. Two-thirds of couples under 55 years of age. I'm 52, right? I'm in this grouping. Two-thirds of couples under 55 have either a step-parent or a step-child. So either my wife or I has a step-parent or a step-child. Two-thirds of couples. That's a ton of folk. Let's get a little more specific about step-family stats. Of all the people in the United States, there's, 100, there's 325 million of us. 113 million of us, 35% of the U.S. population, has a step relationship of some sort or another. That's a lot of people. It's about a third of the U.S. population. And the prediction is 175 million of us will have a step relationship at some point in our lifetime. My brother-in-law, Kent, uh, became a stepchild, I think, at the age of 54 or something like that. You know, His father passed away, and mom married later in life. So all of a sudden, he's got this whole other person in his world. Going to mom's house for Thanksgiving is interesting because you have all sorts of other people there that you don't know. right? It's not going home anymore. You've kind of lost home. Now, for Kent, it was a pretty easy transition because the relationship he had with his mom, he was happy for her. He, this guy's taking care of mom. He's good with that. You know, it's fine. His mom's living her life. But his sister was having lots of difficulties with that whole process, just some challenges related to that. It just didn't feel right to her. So even though they're both adults, they can have a very different experience. How about households, family households? Of all households in the U.S., 40% are raising a stepchild. Somebody, somebody's a step-parent, 40% of households. If we look at couples under 55, this is the stat I just shared with you, 62%, almost two-thirds have a step-parent or a step-child relationship. Now this is an estimate of churches and church membership. We don't have any good numbers, nobody's ever run the data on this, so we're extrapolating, so just give me a little grace, but I would say 25 to 35% of people in the average church. Is it lower than 40%? Yes. A, it should be, right? We should have less divorce. And we do, by the way. Don't believe that old thing that divorce is the same in the church. It's not true, okay? Not true. <laughs> well, see me afterwards. I'll prove it to you. Um, so we should have, just from a divorce standpoint, but we also have less, I think, because we push them out. I'm going to say more about that in just a minute. That's not a good thing. And then of churches in the U.S., and of all churches in the U.S., and this is another estimate on our part, forgive me, but I estimate that less than 
one half of one percent of churches do anything for couples and blended families with some intentionality. Either premarital counseling a little different because you're getting blended, or they do a parenting thing, or they have a small group, or they even anything. It's very, very small. We've got to get busy around this area. We've got to because there's so many people, if not in your church, there are people around your church that are desperate for somebody to help them out a little bit. So let me just kind of talk through ministry, and I'm going to try to hit some high points, and then we'll take some questions at the end if we have some time. Okay, so some barriers that I think we have to overcome. The first one is this. We don't necessarily perceive the need, which is why I just gave you a bunch of stats. Go share that with somebody. The average elder has no clue how much this is happening in our world around us. Raise their awareness a little bit. Help bring them into seeing the need. Sometimes we just need to look around our own church a little bit better and just listen to the stories a little bit, and we might discover that there's there. One of the other things going on and other barriers that families are often very marginalized, and sometimes this is something from within that they manufacture on their own, and sometimes it's something that's coming from the outside. What comes from the inside? It's that spiritual shame over their story, feeling guilty over what's happened, and and, and, it, and in many ways, that's a good thing, right? Sometimes that produces some godliness in their life, that sense of conviction. But in many ways, that's a lingering shame that needs to go away. So, quick little backstory. Um, um, I'm working on a book project with Gary Chapman to write a love languages merger with blended family material, okay? Should be fun. That's due out next year. Pray for me. Gary is an amazing guy. He is an amazing guy. He's 80 years old. And he's still traveling and speaking at the same level that he did when he was 50. Okay? He's cranking books out like nobody's business. He is an amazing guy. And he works part-time as a pastor in a church. So he's still got his, you know, all the irons in the fire. About two years ago, I went and spoke at his church. And I had a conversation with, there was a woman, you know, preach four times at the same place. You kind of get to know the people huh, that you're doing this with over and over again on the stage. And um, this woman who was part of their worship team, after the second service, I struck up a little side conversation. She goes, oh, yeah, you're kind of talking about my life a little bit today. And I'm like, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, you know, my husband and I were in a blended family. And she tells me a little bit of the story. And, you know, and she starts talking about how it's been so hard for her to come back to church. I was like, oh, really? What's that? Well, you know, I just feel so unworthy of being here. And this woman just, I heard her twice sing the same sets of songs about God's grace and his forgiveness and how magnificent he is and how lucky we are. And she is still haunted that she's a divorced person. And so we talked about, and that was the very nature of my message that day, was a little bit about how we need to just have the audacity to embrace grace be okay with our imperfections because God is not really threatened by it. We kind of just do undo ourselves and that's so ironic that I'm having this conversation with this lady. And then I say, well maybe, yeah, who knows, maybe this lesson is really for you and you'll be able to walk in and feel really good and you know, um, speak well of your marriage and with other people here at church. She said, oh no, I could never do that. Well, why not? Because, you know, it's just the whole divorce remarriage. So ironic that people who are in leadership, who are standing up, who are singing the praises of God, are still haunted by shame and paralyzed by it on so many levels. Like this lady is constantly 
up front but trying to hide all at the same time. That is a common experience for blended family couples because they heard the God Hates Divorce sermon when they were four. And somebody still quotes that verse, even though, go look it again, most Bibles don't translate it that way. I can go off on that for a little while. It really doesn't say that. But we still preach that. And people walk around with this impending sense of, so God hates me? And they do kind of feel bad about what's happened in their life. And sometimes they should feel bad about what's happened in their life. But then you get to the point of letting it go and embracing that grace and moving forward. Do we offer the redemptive message or do we just preach against divorce in such a way that makes people ashamed that they have been there, done that? We've got to turn the corner and preach the redemptive piece. Otherwise, they just either keep coming but hide in the shadows or don't come at all. So how do you overcome that? Simple little things. On Mother's Day, it's coming up. Hey, if you're a mom, if you're a stepmom, if you're a foster mom, if you're an adoptive mom, if you're a grandmother, if you're a woman who's helping to pour into the life of a child that's not yours, we just want to say thank you today for being who you are. We, we, we celebrate you on this day. Say the word stepmom out loud from the pulpit. Watch what happens. Somebody's going to be crying in the audience because there's a woman out there who's never been acknowledged for what she is and who she is. And she's scared to death. Most stepmoms tell me Mother's Day is the worst day of the year. They don't want to go to church. Half of them don't show up. The other half are there and they're praying. Nobody makes the mom stand up. Why? Because their role is ambiguous. Like, I don't know who I am. Like, if I stand up and my stepchildren look at me like, you are not my mom. And besides, are you acting like my mom? Because my mom is, should be here and she's not here. Because, and it's so weird that they would just rather not face the day. And so they don't come. If you go that little extra step and just do something that acknowledges their presence, you communicate, we see you. You're not invisible. We see you. It's okay. We love you. We're glad you're here. All of that gets communicated in simple little moments. You belong here. You belong here. It's amazing how important that is. Barrier number three, and it's kind of related to what we were just talking about, theological struggles with marriage and divorce issue. Now, I am... I've been really dumb in my life. I'm not so dumb as to stand here right now and try to tell you what your theology of marriage and divorce and remarriage should be. I've spent a great deal of time studying this topic. Here's what I'm confident of. The scholars don't agree. Well-intentioned, good-hearted, great, brilliant people on all sides have different opinions about this. I am more than happy to let you have your opinion and, and we'll work on this and talk about it and study and we can do all that offline. I just know that if you don't have any, mo any place for a redemptive message within this, then nobody's ever going to show up at your church. They're, they're not going to find any place, and you'll never be able to do ministry. If you want to do ministry, you've got to get this settled with the big dogs at your church. Like They need to know that you feel okay with what they believe they're going to teach and what the boundaries are going to be in this place of worship and that you're going to honor that. So for example, this really hits home when you're working with a dating couple or an engaged couple um, and they want to get married at your church. Some churches feel the need to chase the divorce story and if you don't have the right kind of divorce, it's not going to happen in our place. That's theology working its way out in practical ministry. You need to know what the boundaries are and the rules are for that in your place of worship. 
Why? Because you want the senior minister, you want the elder, you want them feeling confident about what you're doing so they can bless it. If they don't feel confident, they're not going to bless it. Uh, other churches are going to respond to that in a very different sort of way, right? You get to figure all that stuff out, but you do have to wrestle with it. I think you do have to struggle with it um, and find your, find your comfort zone with uh, the people in charge and what they, how they want you to handle the thing. And then one more barrier I'll just mention real quick is that very few people in leadership within Christian circles have been through and live a blended family. Now it's changing. I mean, I'm running into more and more uh, around the country that are in it for one reason or another, divorce, death of a spouse, whatever the case is. Last Saturday, we did an event in Minneapolis that was live streamed around the country and our keynote, one of our first speakers was Rob Booth, senior pastor at Wheaton Bible Church in Wheaton, Illinois. Large mega church right there next to um, uh, Wheaton, the, the seminary. And, you know, he's, his, he had a wonderful marriage and his wife died. And then he ended up marrying his best friends who died, wife, former wife. And so they're a blended family uh, in a high position of leadership within that, within that congregation. That's happening more and more and more. But there's not many voices yet at a level that are getting attention and being heard. And that's one of the reasons why we're not hearing so much about it. So let me just talk about some ministry. Three key objectives. If you do these three things, I don't care how you do them, I would call that fantastic. Number one, acknowledge step families and build a bridge. Pause. This is speaking directly to the shame issues. This is speaking directly to the, it's okay, we love you, you belong here. You know, I've had people kind of push back every now and then, and they'll say, well, you know, if we do blended ministry, aren't we saying that divorce is okay? To which I respond with, so we do divorce care. Is that saying divorce is okay? No, we're just saying we're going to meet you where you are and help you from here. We do post-abortion ministry. Are we encouraging people to go out and get pregnant out of wedlock? No. We celebrate recovery in churches all across America. Are we celebrating addiction? No. As a matter more, think about it. We should probably shut down church because it's filled with people who sinned at one point in their life and now they think they're getting away with it. We really shouldn't do this anymore. Okay, my sarcasm. It's one of my spiritual gifts. It's coming out. I got to put it away. But do you see the point? It's interesting to me why we hold up on this matter when we don't do that on other things. Like, we've, we've settled the theology issue around other things, but we still kind of get all bound up around this one. I get it. We don't want to send the wrong message. Nobody is encouraging divorce. Nobody's condoning that. Everybody, we should teach and preach lifelong marriage. Keep the one you got louder, stronger, bigger in our culture than we ever have before because it's really going by the wayside like we need to be the banner for that and at the same time we can hold up this whole idea of redemption for people who haven't lived that I think otherwise what are we doing is it just me can I get an amen on that I just I want you to feel that conviction because somebody will look at you and say no wait a minute I don't think we should be doing it. and you need to have an answer right you need to have a passionate Answer. So acknowledge them as saying, yes, you belong here. Thank you for it. We're glad you're here. We want to help you walk with Jesus from this point forward. Educate is about giving step family answers to the step family questions, the complexity of their life. 
Yes, talk about parenting and teach parenting, but also talk about step-parenting and how different it is. Yes, talk about marriage and managing your finances. Thank you very much, Dave Ramsey. And talk to them about what do you do when you marry somebody who has their own 401k and you have your social security? Do you combine those things? Do you put your last name? Do the other person on your beneficiary? How do you do that? Do you, do you, is there a black and white answer? For, and the answer is no, there's not a black and white. How do you provide for your children if you die and provide for your new spouse in such a way that it doesn't put them in competition? There's some complex stuff related to that. We have to have the answers if we're going to share those answers with people, which means we kind of have to do some re-education and retooling. That's really what that ultimately that means. You and I gotta have a few answers in our hip pocket so we can try to at least point them in the right direction or at least a resource or two to help educate. Create connections. I can tell you two things about starting a Sunday school class for blended couples or a small group you pick. My, I always tell people, go with what your church does, right? If you're a small group based church, then you need to do small groups. If you're a Sunday school driven church, then you need to do Sunday school. Two things about starting that. Number one, step-family couples are hard to get in there. Why is that? Shame, marginalized, don't trust us. We've kind of earned it, to be honest. Um, and they're embarrassed to tell their story. If I walk in there, I'm basically saying, yes, this is my third marriage, and I'm going to have to explain, and I really don't like that story. I just don't like it. I don't feel good about it. I get that. So there's things that they have to overcome to get in the room. That's number one. It's hard. But number two, once you get them there, <laughs> my experience is that family couples bond faster than anything you've ever seen in your life. And it is dynamic and fun. They will be best friends by the end of first, the first night. And they're you know, connected in social media and the whole bit. Why? Because you get me. Because it's not just us. Oh my gosh, I'm going through that same thing. Oh my word, I don't feel like I'm the loser now. I feel like there's an us here. Uh, our whole strategy in doing that live stream event once a year that we just did last Saturday is because we want to give people a sense of the us that's much, much bigger than who they are. Like to be able to say to that live stream audience, hey, there's 300 sites just like you. You're not the only ones. Here's some common things you're experiencing. If you can relate to any of this, you're, you're in the right place. That sense of commonality is, a, is a really magical for blended couples. So when you put those things together, sometimes it looks like a premarital counseling thing that's one-on-one. -on -one. Sometimes it looks like a mentoring thing where you buddy up an older step-couple. By the way, that's my little term. They're, they're, they're a couple, but they're embedded in a step-family. Step-couple with a younger premarital newly married, you know, the whole mentoring thing. You know, that's great. That's connection, that's community, and it's education, and they feel welcome. However you want to do this, I don't care. It can look different ways in different places. And by the way, you don't have to do all three. Just start with what you can naturally start with, right? That's the first step. That's your takeaway. Where could we start? What's the first simple thing we could do? And it may be that that's the end of it. But it could be that that eventually develops into something else over time. Who knows? So let's look at some other ways that this might flush itself out in a church. Uh, this is a model for my, some friends of mine, Jeff and Judy Parziel. And notice, you can do little points of intervention from the point of divorce recovery or widowhood all the way through singles, single parenting, 
they call it remarriage prep, I would call it pre-step family prep. Now there are step family, you can educate that about marriage enrichment, wrap them into the marriage stuff and the parenting stuff that you normally do. Yeah, nobody's gonna do all of this. I, I just want you to think, what's the logical place for us? So you may be sitting here going, oh yeah, I work with the divorce recovery team. We do that twice a year, we have a small group for people who, great, so here's my little tip. At the end of th the last session of divorce care, have a step-family couple walk in, and for 15 minutes, they're gonna share their little story, and they're gonna say, by the way, we hope you're not dating, and some of you already are, but we wish you weren't. Um, but if you ever fall in love, and you decide to get married and form a blended family, we've got a thing for you. It's a little different than first marriage. Actually, it's a whole lot different. Uh, well, we'd love to help you out. And, and people in the room are going, this is lame, why are we watching? Who are these people? Do, this is not part of my life. And two years later, when they're madly in love with somebody who's got four kids, they come calling, right? You've opened the door. So it's a simple little thing to do in something you're already doing. I'm going to jump to the other end, parenting and, step, and, and, uh, and marriage. Far more common in most churches to do something on marriage. Maybe it's a sermon once a year, but you do something or a retreat or maybe you have a marriage class or something like that. So here's an idea we call sidebars. You don't have to change your marriage curriculum at all. Just keep doing the same old thing that you keep on doing. But add a sidebar. You know what that is if you're reading a magazine article or uh, even online. I'll have a little column over here. And here's the a little sidebar commentary. Add a little tip or tool related to the article. Same thing if you're doing your marriage class and you're going to say, all right, we're going to work on communication skills and managing conflict today. Here's the scenario I want you to work with. Let's say you're a step-parent, and you give them a step-family problem to work on their conflict resolution skills around. Real fast, you're helping people do both of those things, managing conflict and dive into their step matters. Little things like that. You can tell a story that's a two-minute story about a couple. It may not even be your life. It's somebody you know. Here's what they did. Here's how they resolved that. It's a blended family story. Everybody in the room is hearing it, and about 80% of the people in the room can't really relate to that blended family story because they're in a first marriage, but that 20% just went, oh my word, Ron knows I'm here, and Ron cares, and Ron just told me that it's okay that I'm here, and I don't have to hide in the closet anymore. He gets my life. He cares. And then they come up to you at the end of class, and they go, hey, that's a blended family thing? That's us. Can we, do you have any more? And you've opened the door to connect. Sidebars are a magic from the pulpit. It goes a long way towards developing a sense of connectedness to the different people in the room. So sidebars are really helpful. Again, you can do it in different places. Remarriage prep, you can do that one-on-one. -on -one. I mentioned the mentoring scenario. Um, and by the way, we have resources for all of this. Um, I got a book called The Smart Step Family. We have a marriage mentor guide that goes along with that. If you have couples that are mentors, you can just hand it to them and they can walk a couple through that study and they don't really have to be the experts. They just kind of let the book do the teaching, but they're doing the community thing all at the same time. So we try to empower that. Um, some churches are doing, because they have lots of couples and they, they do more of a workshop style, premarital. You can figure out how to do sidebars within that or perhaps develop eventually into its own thing. Some of you may be familiar with Watermark Community Church in Dallas. They have a really 
tremendous marriage ministry that is into the DNA of the whole church. And they're really well known for it, and they're teaching it. You can go and kind of learn their, their, um, their, their structure, their strategy. Years ago, they said, hey, we don't know how to do this step family thing. So we just spent some time with them, and we, I said the same thing to them. What's the logical first step? And they said, well, here's the way we do our marriage ministry on Wednesday nights. And they have like 600 people show up at this, okay? And half of them don't go to their church. Uh, we have a couple come up, and they do a little 10-minute testimonial. We have about a 15-minute teaching time, and then everybody goes back to tables. Um, they're sitting at tables throughout this, but now they have their table talk. And they sit with the same people over the whole course of the material curriculum, and so they get, really get to know one another and trust each other. And every week they're processing in light of what they've just heard in light of their own marriage. That's basically our model. I said, all right, create a table for blended couples. Right? You're not, you're not changing anything. The material's the same. You're just doing the community piece and letting them organically discuss it with one another. And the step stuff will come out. They said, great, we'll do that. Well, that, that developed into a second table. That developed into a third table that developed into we need a separate night and now they have a separate night and a whole separate program for blended couples but that took years to get to that place so they just started with what seemed reasonable and then went from there a few other thoughts raise awareness of the leadership in the church i mentioned that that's why i gave you those stats find a home for your ministry this is kind of the question of all right where does in the most ideal scenario where does step family ministry fit and my answer is, I don't know. You're going to have a better sense of that than I do. If you have a marriage ministry, here's the way I would suggest you think about it. At least this is a, you know, one proposal. We used to say the top circle, historical target. Marriage ministry, when it first started, was just married couples. And then somebody said, well, we need to help those premarital couples. And so the whole premarital thing kind of became its own. I would suggest to you that blended family strategies is its own thing now. And all three of those together is a holistic marriage ministry. Some of this carries over into the premarital range. Some of it carries over to the marriage stuff. There's stuff you already teach to your married couples that is dynamic and awesome. They still need to know how to manage money and finances and the sex stuff still works for them. All right? But there's a whole set of things that are unique to their family situation that we you don't teach to any of those other couples, and so it needs its own place. How you structure that in your church is entirely up to you. Some churches put it in their adult ed. Some churches put it in their Sunday school. Some churches say, yeah, we've got our marriage ministry team. They're going to be kind of trying to incorporate some of this. If you don't need a, an official home, fine. But usually what you do need is some accountability. You need budget. You need somebody who will help you promote this thing. So you do have to tie it in somewhere so that it has a life and it has a chance of actually sustaining itself over time. So this, I mean, that's, that's not a hard definition. That's kind of a loose one. Um, but I would offer that to you. So I already mentioned this one, give step-family answers to step-family questions. Um, in the last session, we talked a little bit about how to cook a step-family and parenting, so I'm not, I'm not going to take time to do that right now. Um, but I will say that there's a, there's a tool in Prepare and Rich now that I think is really helpful for some of you, and I just want to raise your awareness to it. How many of you use Prepare and Rich? All right, good. Well, you got some familiarity. It's a, it's a wonderful tool for assessing 
in dating engaged and married couples in the strength of their relationship, they now have prepared rich parenting. Okay, it's been out for over a year. I kind of helped them do some of the early work on how they, uh, they verbalize some of this and assess some of this. And then definitely on the step family section, I got to help consult with some of that. So let me just show you real quickly what they've added to it. You now get these five personal, uh, excuse me, parenting styles, un uninvolved, top right, permissive, bottom right, overbearing, bottom left, strict, more balanced in the middle is where people want to be. So here's a couple, got to get married, Kate and Alex, and you can see that Kate is, leans a little permissive and Alex definitely down towards the strict style. Now, if you were just guessing, I'm going to quiz those of you that were in my last workshop when we talked about parenting and step-parenting a little bit. If Kate is going to be the stepmom, does this parenting style, is this advantageous to her as a stepmom or a little bit of trouble? And why? Test time. On day one as a stepmom. Is it a good thing that she's a little permissive, meaning yeah, she's not I, real heavy on structure? It's, be, it's better than being on the strict end. It's better than being, absolutely. She's going to focus on and emphasize relationship rather than structure. That's a positive. That's actually what we want a step-parent to do on day one. So this is actually going to be nice for her. Yes. But she's going to struggle because she wants to be close with those stepkids from day one. And they won't necessarily, and that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be close. Yeah. But so her heart's going to be in the right place. We need to help her tone down her expectations a little bit. Good. Nice. How about Alex? If he's going to be a stepdad on day one, this is working against him big time. Right? I'm large. I'm in charge. Uh, all right, kids. I'm the new boss in town. New sheriff's in town. My way or the highway. Is this, is this invite them to love him? <laughs> right? You see how that unwinds? Bonding. So all of a sudden, I know how to begin to coach these people towards those directions. But if you think that's cool, wait till you see the next one. Because then this other part of the inventory does this. Look over on the far right, and you can see that we see how they're going to parent three children. The, the inventory will handle up to four. If somebody has five or more, you've got to just pick four, okay? <laughs> Your pick. Alex has Andrew hits his stepchild. Megan is a stepchild, and Michael is his biological child. Kate, so it's just the opposite. Andrew's bio, Megan, and then Michael's step. Let's look at number two, Megan. How does Alex parent Megan? He's very strict on Megan, his stepdaughter. How is, how is uh, his wife, Kate, parenting her daughter far more permissive, right? Can you just see problems all over this? How old is Megan? 11 to 14, that's a tough age. That's one of the hardest ages to enter a child's life, and you're going to come in and try to be this guy. I'm going to say, no, look, dude, I need you to cool it a little bit. I need you to be a little more relational, a little less rules. Because we all know rules without relationship leads to rebellion. That's true in bio families. That is four times as true in step parenting, right? So I can help him get a sense of, oh, this is what that means. By the way, uh, Kate, if he's going to shift and be a little less rules, what does that mean you have to be? You've got to be the mom. Let's talk about what that means. So this becomes very dynamic, very fast, very personal. It's a great tool if you're not familiar with it. If you know Prepare and Rich, you already have the ability to use this. 
You don't have to recertify, you don't have to pay anything. It's just an option. It's already in the system when you log them in. Okay, I'm talking too much about that. Um, let's, let's move on a minute. Uh, Church-wide ministry, children's ministry, and student ministry. You know, this is an awareness thing. Do your church children's ministry volunteers know who can pick up kids and who can't? Are they aware of visitation swaps that may be taking place every Wednesday night or on Sundays as one parent drops off and another parent picks up? What are the boundaries around that? Have you thought through that from a safety standpoint? How do we know who's supposed to do what? Um, student ministries. You take kids on youth trips, mission trips, sign the release form, the medical release form. The, well, step parents cannot sign those medical release forms. They don't have the legal right to give permission to a child to A, travel outside the state, and B, to give medical permission for them to be treated. And so if you get signed by the wrong person, you just encountered some liability there. Now, little things like that that are related to the process. But bigger than that is the relational stuff. How many times do you call the other home and connect with them around what's going on with their child. So let's say bio mom and stepdad come to your church. Johnny's 16, he's going on the mission trip. Do we ever even bother calling bio dad? Hey, Mr. Jones, just want you to know I'm taking your kid out to so-and-so for two weeks and we're gonna be serving these people and I just want you to know we're gonna take good care of them, of him. And here's how you can get in touch with us and know what's going on. And by the way, do you have any questions for me? Would you like to somehow be a part of the kickoff or be there when we... You know, a lot of times we don't even get into that. We just take who comes to us. Like, let's go to them. Let's find ways of trying to figure out those relationships. And yeah, there might be, it might be wise to have a conversation with mom to figure out how to approach that and to learn something from her. My experience is mom's going to be somewhat tainted about her former husband. So take everything with a little bit of a grain of salt. You know, she'll say, oh, he'll never talk to you. He'll never call you back. And he doesn't give a rip about where Johnny's going for two weeks. Give him a call anyway. Who knows? He just might really be very interested and, you know, appreciate little things like that go a long way to ministering to the heart of that child. All right, let me think. Where do I want to go next? Um, I talked a little bit about this next one, create connections, and number six, make use of sidebars in your general marriage and, and parenting stuff. I think that can be useful. Let's just call it quits right there. Okay, so let me pause. Questions, comments, thoughts as you're processing. What are you thinking? What are you chewing on? I think it's really easy to get intimidated and feel overwhelmed. Got it. Um, keep learning and retooling and start with one thing. I just have a quick question. We got a member at our congregation who, she has stepchildren, but no children of her own. Not quite certain what my question is there, but how does that change the dynamics of family? Within a family? When one parent has, or doesn't have any biological children. Yeah, one parent has children, the other has no children. Yeah, it's a little, so just in general, it's a little less complex, right? You have kids moving between two homes instead of three homes, right? Um, it it kind of, it's hard to predict exactly what the difference will be. 
one of the factors there is when both adults have kids, they're insiders with their children. They always have a home base. If stress hits and pulls people apart, they always have somebody to retreat to. But if they don't have any biological children, then they're the perpetual outsider. Which means when you're out, you're really out and you're all isolated and all alone. And that can be a really miserable experience because you feel completely separate from where the other people are. That's, so there's beauty in getting stepmoms together to talk and not just commiserate, but, but to encourage each other and uh, you know, read a book and, and, and try to help each other stay in the game, so to speak, rather than kind of pull further away. Does that, does that help? That makes sense. Yeah, so I mean, there's definitely different dynamics that fit for different scenarios. In general, and I was afraid to say these things because I want you to take it too far, but in general, when the less complex a family is, just in terms of people and structure, the easier it is for them to merge. Okay, there's still some downsides to it for any individual in the home, but it's a little bit easier if only one parent's bringing kids into the mix than if they're both bringing kids into the mix. Yes? Do you know if Simbas is using the family? They are. Okay. Uh, I've talked to Les, and um, the leader's guide for blended family section I wrote for them. So they, they're using some of our material um, between you and me. I like the Fairridge a lot better. It's just more thorough, uh, gives you more options, goes deeper, farther than I think Simpsons does. I don't think Simpsons is a bad tool at all. If that's your thing, and that's where you're working, keep, go keep going, use it. Yeah. Other thoughts, questions? In some ways, I hope I've thoroughly confused you. Because that's created a little bit of a angst somewhere deep inside where you go, I've got to think through this, I've got to work through this. Yeah, that's the road I want you on. That's the journey I want you to be on. Um, and I think the Lord will bless that and will take it someplace. And it will eventually bear fruit in you in some way. And you'll know exactly what that is. One more question. Hmm. Cultural pieces, because I see it in my church, and they, they come from different cultural backgrounds. Yeah. It creates this whole multi-church. Yeah, the couple that leads the uh, ministry, since we're in Southern California, the couple that leads the blended family ministry at Saddleback Community Church was supposed to do a workshop for me last year on intercultural blended families. And then something happened, and they couldn't, a family situation happened, and they couldn't come. We're working in that direction. I can tell you that is one of a number of areas that there is no material anywhere. Uh, secular, yes. Research, really heavy, thick research stuff that nobody likes to read, yes. But practical ministry-based, no. We've got a long ways to go, yeah. And so if you know anything about this, like, I want to use you. Because <laughs> we've got areas we've got to develop. Thank you. I think time's up. I'll be I'll hang around for a few minutes if you have additional questions. Thank you all so much.